0: Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host Andrew Schiestel and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Paul Cartledge for a conversation about commerce in Archaic Greece. Dr. Cartledge is A.G. Leventis, Senior Research Fellow, Clare College at University of Cambridge. He's also Emeritus, so retired with honors. Emeritus A.G. Leventis, Professor of Greek Culture at University of Cambridge as well. He has written over 100 publications over his career, so very distinguished as a writer. A couple of books that he's authored as examples that are germane to this conversation today. Democracy, A Life, which was published by Oxford University Press, and Thebes, The Forgotten City of Ancient Greece, which was published by Picador. Welcome to call, Paul.
1: Thank you, Andrew. Very, very pleasure to talk with you today.
0: Likewise. So when scholars talk about archaic Greece, what date range are they referencing?
1: they're referencing roughly the three centuries in round figures from 800 to 500 bc or bce and it's called archaic not because it's old-fashioned or you know really backward but because it's leading up to the classical period these are technical terms if you find archaic then look for classical and vice versa. And Archaic Greece is a formative period in um, many ways, uh, one of which is the uh, sense of geography, that is, the Greek world. We mustn't think just in terms of the modern state of Greece, which is expansive enough in its way, but Hellas, as the Greeks themselves spoke of it, extended by 500 BC, from as far west as what's today southern France, Provence, and eastern Spain, southeast Spain, that's in the west, North Africa, in what's today Libya, there were Greeks permanently settled, in Egypt, in the Nile Valley, in the Nile Delta, and then if you go around the Mediterranean, go up and go through the Hellespont, you come to the Black Sea through the Dardanelles, the Bosporus. Well, there were Greeks settled quite a lot around the Black Sea. So when we say Hellas, we're thinking of two large basins, the Mediterranean Basin and uh, the Black Sea Basin, within which there was something like between 900 and 1,000 separate political settlements. So again, no such thing as one state of ancient Greece or archaic ancient Greece, but many, many Greek communities, many of which were actually not very fond of other Greek communities. So the relationship between Greeks in terms of politics was quite often fraught, whereas in terms of economics or in terms of society, in terms of religion. They might well share a common religious outlook, a common language, and so on and so on, but they just were very, very self referential in terms of their political organization. They were extremely, if you like, focused in on themselves and self defining
0: hm yeah and I, and I know we're we're going to guide the conversation more towards uh, what would be modern day Greece in that in that area, but I am curious. Um, did these uh, so Hales, Did these different territories? Did they trade a lot with each other?
1: Indeed, um, just to give you one example from the west, after Greeks had started trading, and they were then competing with locals, so Etruscans from Italy or Phoenicians who came from what's today roughly lebanon there are all these different nationalities of traders not all of them of course free some of them were unfree slave agent traders well let's suppose that the greeks were after iron the iron from the island of elba well then that's one source of um, a metal which was absolutely crucial for all sorts of um, cutting-edge tools especially including military ones swords and uh, so on and so forth spear points and whatever so that's just one example of how it would be very much in the interests of mainland greeks people who live in roughly where the modern state of greece is today in getting access via trade to non-greek sources of um, basic resources like minerals and metals
0: fascinating the mainland area and some of the periphery islands what was the governance structure like during this era
1: well as i've said that each individual well the greek word was polis it eventually gives us our word political but it's not um precisely what we would understand by a state or a city state though that's the conventional translation these are small units of self-governance typically with an urban center and then a periphery of the land from which the citizens who live either on the land or in the town centre, draw their resources. The What's called the modal size, that is the most frequently occurring size, is thought to be, in terms of citizen numbers, something between 500 and 2,000 adult males aged 18 and over so we're talking about on average very very small communities whereas the biggest would extend up to if you add in not just the women and children of the male citizens but also the unfree inhabitants or the resident aliens Traders and so on. You might get up to twenty-five thousand, maybe absolute maximum fifty thousand. It's not before the fifth century that it really happens. And then Syracuse in Sicily, these take off, and you get into um, over one hundred thousand. In fact, you get up to perhaps half a million in the case of Athens and its surrounding territory. But our period, what we're looking at, eight, seven, six centuries. Much, much smaller, 10,000, 20,000, that's big by their standards.
0: Had democracy arrived yet?
1: Yes, in this sense, a kind of proto democracy at Athens just before the end of our notional period. So in the 500s, um, 508-7 is the precise date at Athens. But though um, Athens was very advanced in that respect, such that ordinary people who weren't wealthy, who weren't noble, might actually claim, simply because they were citizens, to have an equal share. And because poor were outnumbering there were more poor citizens than wealthy citizens then they said right we want to rule well you you would think that's sort of normal and natural but actually it doesn't of course work that way it was a struggle and within athens at the end of the 6th century so in that 5087 period there are two kinds of struggles going on one is to resist the spark who want to impose their type of ruler to enable them to dominate Athens. Against that, within Athens, there are two kinds of political tendencies, the more democratic and the more, well, shall I call it reactionary, who think that the rich and the well-born and the noble and the well-educated, only they should rule. So broadly speaking, it's a distinction between oligarchy rule of the few and democracy but democracy is only just peeking through it's only just beginning to rear its head it develops in the fifth and fourth centuries much much more but even so never was a majority of those 1000 or so greek cities a democracy it's worth remembering that
0: and you mentioned uh so far a couple different um city states regions if if you will um what, and and I don't want to uh, make any presumptions, during this period in uh, mainland Greece and the periphery, uh, what were the major polities at that time?
1: Right, well actually I can play to my strength there because you mentioned at the beginning my book on Thebes. Well the Thebes were planted in a large plain access to good pasture land and agricultural land they had a very defensible large acropolis as the center of their city they were about 90 kilometers about 55 miles away from Athens now Athens also had a big acropolis access to some fertile territory but not as well watered and therefore, not as suitable for rearing cattle of any size. So, there's a distinction there, not suitable in Athens and around for rearing horses. So, in Boeotia, you get an emphasis on cattle rearing and on cavalry, which you don't get in Athens. Those two cities, they're 55 miles apart. That's far enough to coexist, except that (laughs) Greeks tended to be quite jealous and to be looking over their shoulder the whole time. So they were actually, for most of the period, enemies. And they actually fought just before the end of um, the 6th century. And the Athenians won. It was part of the way the Athenians were on an upward trajectory. They invent democracy. They then move on to become a major naval power. Thebes remains a land-based oligarchy with cavalry and infantry. And it is, to be fair, a fair way from the sea. So you wouldn't expect it to become a naval power. But the biggest power of my period, our period, is actually Sparta. And Sparta down in the south, in the Peloponnese, is quite extraordinary in a number of ways. By conquest, the Spartans expanded from their home base in the southeast to encompass and incorporate the southwest of the Peloponnese as well, so that by conquest, their territory, their home territory, about 8,000 square kilometers, about 3,000 square miles, was easily the biggest in the whole of the Greek world. Within it, there were three categories of persons, legally speaking. Spartans, free citizens, the dominant ruling class, if you like. Then come down in between free Greeks who lived within the territorial borders of the Spartan state, but were not Spartan citizens. They were citizens of their local communities. And now thirdly, and this is the most important fact about Sparta, largest single population group were unfree they were greeks but they were a kind of slaves and the greeks called them helots which means captives and that's really what they were they were workers mainly agriculturalists mainly farmers who served the spartans as their working class spartans did no work other than fighting battles or training to fight battles. they didn't make anything they didn't sow they didn't reap they were not farmers the helots did that and the people in between the two the free inhabitants outside sparta they were traders they were manufacturing they were retailers and so on they were normal greeks but the spartans were very abnormal greeks and the underclass the helots they were very abnormal greeks as well
0: between these city-states thebes athens sparta there's probably some some other ones that could be included were they all speaking the same language at this point
1: Yes, that, um, it's one of the definitions of who is a Greek, is that you speak Greek. Other aspects definitional are that you have the same religious outlook, you worship the same gods, goddesses, in roughly the same ways. And then thirdly, you have the notion, it's a, somewhat fictional, that you're all related, that once upon a time you all had a common ancestor, and so the ones that exist now in the eighth, sevenths, fifth century, sixth centuries, they're all, as it were, distant kinsmen. But the language, you put your uh, finger on it, though they all spoke Greek, not everybody spoke the same dialect of Greek. So there are three main dialects, sub-dialects, if you like, ionic, eonic and doric spartans spoke a version of doric the this is rather convenient the athenians spoke a version of ionic and the thebans spoke a version of eonic so that they were all distinguished from each other by their dialects, as well as by other things
0: how did trade then function let's start with um between the different city-states so how how did trade function between the city-states
1: well broadly speaking there would be um less uh, immediate exchange between let's say sparta and athens or athens and thebes than there would be between athens and the territories from which it drew the resources from outside the greek world of which it was short. So, um, just to take Athens, already by 500 BC, the population had grown such that the local production of barley and wheat, the two main kinds of cereal crops, couldn't be guaranteed to feed all the citizen population every year and therefore they'd already started looking to resources from outside in particular from three areas the west from sicily i know it seems strange but it uh, was the case that in antiquity sicily was a kind of bread basket producing a surplus especially of wheat from cyprus Ditto. And most of all, from the northern shore of the Black Sea, which is, of course, still what the Russians call the Chernozen, the black earth land on the northern shore, Ukraine today, South Russia today, Athenians were already importing. So, yes, there was interregional local greek trade suppose the thebans had a very bad harvest well that year the athenians might have had a good one It's very important to remember that though you think of Greece as a unit, which in a sense it was, there were lots and lots of microclimates. So even within the territory of the Spartans or even within the territory of the Athenians, one bit might get enough rain to produce wheat one year and another not. So we have examples of um, emergency purchases of grain when either the Thebans have a bad harvest or the Athenians have a bad harvest. harvest. But otherwise, there wouldn't be much in the way of staples traded. The other two staples are, of course, wine, together with um, um, grain, and the third of what's sometimes called the Mediterranean Triad is the olive, which typically was um, consumed in the form of olive oil. Well, as it happens, the Athenians' territory was particularly suited to oil such that they exported olive oil in return for, for example, grain. The Spartans, on the other hand, unlike both the Thebans and the Athenians, were much more self-sufficient on an annual, on a, if you like, regular daily basis. They produced what they needed in order to consume and they maybe built up some surpluses against a bad year for example olive oil can be stored for two years without going off so if you're worried that your next year you might have a bad harvest then you store up against that and the spartans we're told their olive crop typically was so abundant that they were the first greeks to use olive oil not just for food or to for eating or cooking but to anoint themselves when they took exercise so that shows you if you can afford to use olive oil for non-functional not directly functional purposes you've got a ton of it to
0: spare Mm -hmm. and i want to clarify a point i think you made was there less trade going on in mainland greece amongst the different polities than there would have been with them importing and exporting to different parts of Hellas
1: by and large the answer is yes in other words every Greek peasant farmer most Greeks were peasant farmers who lived on or near their territory and they grew the basic triad of grain olives and uh, wine grapes. They would aim to be self-sufficient, but could not always be so. And therefore, relatively speaking, the difference between local trade and extra-local trade is that the um, extra-local trade is in necessities, which the local community and um, local economies did not produce. So, as I've mentioned already, iron. Well, as it happens, um, the Spartans had good resources of iron, so they didn't need to import, but everyone else had to worry about iron. And then if we're talking about coinage, which starts to come in, in the 6th century, the Greeks borrow the idea from non-Greek Lydians in what's now western Turkey, western Anatolia. Well, silver occurs uh, almost uniquely in the Athenians territory and in northern Greece, but not elsewhere. So most cities that coin silver had to import the raw material in order to produce silver coinage.
0: So the don't want to use the word lack because obviously there would have been trade on the mainland as well, but to the lesser degree of trade on the mainland amongst each other versus the extra trade, um, if you will. So that had more to do with, uh, you you know, in the mainland, you either had an ability to produce grain in a season or you, you, you didn't. So there's necessity. Um, Absolutely. So, So did it have less to do with then conflicts? or competition that the city-states would have had? Was that not so much of of an effect or did that have an effect at certain times in this period?
1: That's a very, very good question. It had its major effect at the time when these cities, which after a period which I haven't gone back into, sometimes we speak of the dark ages before 800 BC. So 800 and after, things are getting better well this is when the greek world is repopulating itself after a major economic possibly climatic we don't know the exact reasons but certainly a major recession that went on for hundreds of years after 800 new communities are being founded or the existing communities are expanding. Well, at the boundary, let's say between the Thebans and fellow Boeotians who speak Aeolic, they would hit in the south and east the people who live in Attica the territory of the Athenians who speak Ionic and so the typical you you put your finger on it where the friction comes is when these peoples and settlements are expanding once they're settled once okay this is Boeotia here is the boundary By and large, um, yes, there might be disputes over a particular bit of it, but there wouldn't typically be a dispute over which is Boeotian territory, which is uh, Athenian territory. So there is... A major source of warfare in the formative period, mainly the 8th, 7th, rather than the 6th century, is indeed precisely one community rubbing up against another and fighting to get the best farmland, the best pastureland, or the most that it can possibly get, then being in a position to defend it. That's quite right.
0: Was there currency yet during this period?
1: Yes. um, Following on, uh, probably borrowing from the idea um, from the Lydians in central western Anatolia, so that's where the bulge of Turkey comes into the Aegean, that sort of area. Just inland from the coast there, there are Greeks along the coast. But in Lydia occurs naturally gold, and so the Lydians start coining in gold and in a, uh, again, a naturally occurring amalgam of gold and silver, which is called electron. And so you get very small and not very nicely rounded. You know, they don't, to begin with, look particularly like finished, polished uh, coins. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, the point of them is to represent a certain weight of the metal, which is cashed out in what it can buy. And what it's thought people were using these very expensive, very you know large denomination coins to begin with for was if you've got taxes to pay, if you've got mercenaries to pay, if you've got a religious dedication that you want to make to the gods, not, in other words, you go into the local store, you there practice barter, which is not done using coins. The Greeks borrowed the idea they don't have gold. They don't have electrum, but they do have silver. And so their first coinages are of silver and pretty highly refined silver as well. In other words, a high silver content with very, relatively few impurities. But again, they start, like the Olympians, with big denominations. And it's not until the end of the 6th century that you start to get fractional. Coins, which suggests that, oh, I see, so they might individually be wanting to use a coin to buy something for themselves rather than um, using it to store wealth or to pay a tax or pay for some very large purchase, maybe Mm. a house, something like that. Mm. And then in the 5th century, for the first time, the Greeks start coining an amalgam, Um, a copper alloy, what we call bronze, and that really is small change for the first time. Ordinary poorish people have bronze coins, which they use to buy uh, supplies in the market, maybe a new hoe or a new rake or something like that.
0: Were they sourcing the copper domestically or were they importing it?
1: No, again, copper. I see none of these really basic materials. Um, I mentioned um, the Etruscans and Elba. Well, you could get copper from there. But the most um, regular source, the very island is called copper in Greek, is Cyprus. And so that was because they're huge deposits in central Cyprus. And that was the main source of copper, which is crucial for bronze, which is used for all sorts of implements as well as vessels Uh, for example helmets breastplates military equipment are made of bronze Mm -hmm. if you want to make something of bronze you've got to have copper because that's going to be 90 plus percent of your alloy Mm -hmm.
0: would they have been minting the coins then um, domestically or in cases where they had to import the material from a place like Cyprus, was the coins themselves being created in Cyprus?
1: All, all coinage was domestically minted, and by no means every Greek city ever coined. So famously, Sparta never coined until way later in a quite different um, circumstance. And it did make a difference how wealthy a community it was because you need to import the raw materials if you're going to coin... In silver, unless you're Athens and the Athenians happened to have lead within which was silver. So um, silver bearing lead mines, which came into operation in a big way from the late 6th century B.C. onwards. But by and large, Greek cities that coined, coined domestically, they did not use any other currency. That is the development of a, late, in other words, the development of international currencies in the Greek world is a later phenomenon.
0: So because at this point there's not a unified country, there they are city-states, and then there's also a broader uh, pan-region that spans quite... Quite far. Um, were there different coins representing the different different types of coins representing the different city states?
1: There were different weight standards which would apply across micro regions, and so eventually, most cities would agree that it's much more convenient that we all go on the same or one of just one or two weight standards. And the first um, one that acquired a certain prestige, and therefore other cities copied it, was from the island, the city island of Aegina, which is not far from Athens. Then Athens, and uh, then others. But by and large... um, Though there were a common weight standards, the key thing about coinage was it wasn't just an economic phenomenon, it was also political. So to establish your identity, you boasted that you had your own coins and your own citizens used your own coins and the way in which you distinguish your coins because it's all made from the same material, silver and then later on bronze, is by the devices on the front, which is the obverse, and on the reverse. So just to take Athens, a symbol of an owl came to be, All ah, right, right, that's Athens, if you look mm-hmm. at that. Then some other cities had, um, um, what are called canting device, so they're kind of puns. So Rhodes, when it starts to coin, its name means rose, uh, the flower, rothos. So you have a rose depicted on the front of your coin. And then on the back, you might use that to show who was the official in charge of the mint at the time at which this coin was struck. That becomes quite common, so you have different letters on the back. Or, to give another example from, if you like, my uh, region, Boeotia, there would be a common symbol of a shield, so that means Boeotia, but then you'd have different two letters. Ah, that's Thebes, T-H-E, as opposed to, and then another one might be Tanagra, ta and so on so um coinage is quite a supple and subtle means of self-promotion self-advertisement self-identification over and above the purely economic function as store of wealth and Mm medium of payment and exchange
0: amongst the colonies outside of the mainland what was the confidence level in these coins
1: very high because um, we have a number of cases where you can see that there has been a cut made just to check that the coin is not merely silver on the outside and bronze or copper or lead on the inside. On the other side, we do find some coins which are precisely deceptive but they are a tiny minority when we get written evidence when we get sources which talk about economics which talk about for example coinage one of the types of evidence we have is precisely fraudulent coinage or Coinages that are struck in emergencies, and the classic case is Athens. This is in the fifth century BC. They're running out of silver, their local silver. So, in an emergency, they strike gold. Where did they get the gold from? Well, they had got it earlier. They'd imported it when they were wealthier, and they'd put it, for example, on their statues in temples. In emergency, they go to their temples. They take the gold off. They melt it down and they turn it into coins. But that is very much an emergency measure.
0: Hmm. Is there any other products that you like to mention? There's obviously many different products they would have been manufacturing. But is there another one or, or more that you think is worthwhile mentioning that they would have manufactured in this period?
1: There's one in particular which is both um, produced for local consumption and for export, and it's uh, fired clay, what we call fine-painted pottery. And one way in which you distinguish between the artifactual horizon of, let's say, Thebes and Athens is what sort of painted pottery did the potters and painters of Thebes make Mm. as opposed to the pottery that people in Athens the potters and painters made and then secondly how much of the painted pottery that we excavate because it's one of the few artifacts that doesn't decompose it's very you've got to crush it in order to make it disappear and if you're uh, excavating a, a tomb then you're likely to get a whole pot. So the next question is, what percentage of the total pottery extent, horizon, was imported? so that tells you what tastes were like as well as what economic levels were like well one city came to dominate the entirety of the production not just of mainland Greece but actually the Mediterranean uh, as a whole in the 5th century and that is Athens Athens is painted pottery in its keramikos we get our word ceramic from that Mm. it means the potter's quarter they happen to have particularly good beds of clay at a place now called Amarusi just north of Athens and they developed a potter's quarter where Owners might be Athenians, they might be non-Athenian resident aliens and the actual workers might be Athenians, that is the potters and painters, or they might be foreigners, free foreigners, or, and this is the, you know, one of the interesting things about ancient Greek culture, they might be non-Greek slaves who are owned by the person who owns the pottery business and broadly speaking the development uh, that occurs within our period it's partly technical partly aesthetic is the shift from black figure to red figure in black figure fine painted pottery the ground the background is red of various colors of red with a slip sort of a bit of very very fine clay and water and then on top of that you paint in black and then you incise the details for the musculature the facial features and so on Mm -hmm. that is overtaken at the end of the sixth century in the 530s and following by red figure where the figures are left in the color of the clay Uh, The technical term is reserved, whereas the background is painted in black gloss. So the Athenians were, as I say, the most um, successful, the dominant fabric. Their stuff's exported all over the Greek world. But in the Archaic period, which is what you and I are looking at, the Thebans, the Spartans, the Corinthians, all the other major centers of mainland Greece would produce their own distinctive local styles of pottery, Mm. which were used not just in the home on a daily basis for eating and so on, but when someone dies, you might commission a really fancy set of, well, the Greeks like to imagine that in the afterlife, people would be living pretty much as they'd lived in the real life so that they'd need to eat and drink. So they'd have very fancy um, goblets to drink their wine out of and plates to eat their meat off and so on and so on. So that's uh, one of our main sources of evidence. The great debate is how big a factor economically was the production of painted pottery. As opposed to the production of raw, rough, what's called coarse pottery, mm-hmm. unpainted, not fine wares, as opposed to all the other factors in the economy, agriculture, trade, imports, and all that stuff, we we argue about that.
0: Is there a reason to believe a lot of it was exported? The
1: well, certain fabrics, we use that word, certain cities' production has acquired particular cachet. So that if you're a non-Greek Etruscan, you want the very best Athenian pottery to go first in your home and then in your fancy tomb. If you're a southern Italian non-Greek, uh, you might import a really fancy, just one, for a special burial or possibly a funeral feast followed by a special burial. And the same, by the way, is true of bronze vessels, which I've not talked about, but they too were made in certain centres, Argos, Corinth, Sparta, Athens, and exported on commission, typically, not as a regular item of export trade, but somebody would say, I want a set of that type of water bars or that type of wine container to be made out of bronze, please, and then export it to me and I'll pay for it.
0: Fascinating. Probably an entire episode could be dedicated to the production of ceramics in the Mediterranean basin. (laughs) Um, Did contracts exist in this uh, period and how did Greeks settle uh, civil disputes?
1: You mean civil disputes arising out of maybe Business. disputes over yeah. contracts? Yeah, well, certainly they, they existed. The Greek word is symbolia, it's where we get our word symbol from. And that's because before written contracts, each side would produce a token, a symbol which they would give to the other side, and that was the guarantee that the contract would be fulfilled. Of course, it didn't always work out. But by the end of the sixth century, our period, by the end of the Archaic period, we're getting examples on lead of letters which specify who is to trade with whom, in what, and where. So Mm. that's a kind of contract. But in terms of uh, more sophisticated written contracts between two parties, where there is an issue that could come to a law court, that is a development more of the fifth and more particularly of the, of the fourth century, so what we call the 300s. And we don't mm. actually have any actual written Contracts, because they would have been written on papyrus. And in mainland Greece, the, the, the uh, climate and the uh, soil and so on, too wet, uh, they don't survive. In Egypt, now we're talking about a later period, Alexander the Great conquers Egypt. Greeks take over Egypt. They write written contracts on papyri and they survive. But we don't have, from the earlier period, but we had speeches in the law court which especially in that which were commissioned by you know an aggrieved party prosecute somebody for breach of contract well you want to have the best kind of um, argument that you can so you hire a speechwriter to write up a very good attack or in the case of the defendant the defense and quite a number of the contractual speeches of course ideal versions of speeches that were actually delivered in an Athenian court, they do survive.
0: And what were those occurring um, starting in the classical period or, or did that actually occur in the archaic?
1: No, the first evidence for that is the late 5th century, the 420s, and the first type of loan with legal um, implications is what's known as a bottomary loan. So let's say you want to buy a cargo, and you don't have the money and you go to a money lender and he loans you at huge interest a certain amount of money you buy your cargo you go on your boat you go off let's say to the black sea because you want to get grain or you want to get slaves that's something i've not mentioned sadly there was a considerable slave trade in non-greeks coming to the greek mainland you then take out a bottomy loan if you're successful you come back you've got your Um, what you wanted to buy and you've made your profit, you pay back the loan. If the ship goes down, then the loan is written off. It's one of those very risky loans from the point of view of the lender. And then on the other hand, the people, the person who, the creditor, on the other hand, if successful, nevertheless has to pay a huge interest on the loan. So Mm. that's the first kind and it's not till the fourth century the 300s that we get these law court speeches i mentioned where you might get the trader the person actually doing the trade is a slave and the person who is bringing the lawsuit is the owner of that slave who claims that his slave has been maltreated in a commercial transit you know it gets quite sophisticated and complicated but that's a much later development than the period we're focusing on
0: we covered a lot of ground today paul it's been very enjoyable uh, chatting with you thank you for coming on the show
1: well thank you andrew for inviting me and i hope your listeners enjoy it as much as i have
0: if anyone would like to pick up any of dr cartilage's books i'll Uh, drop links to the couple that i had cited at the start of the show in the show notes on the episode subpage at ithacabound.com those two books were democracy a life and the other one was thebes the forgotten city of ancient greece paul and everyone listening as always wishing you a marvelous journey bye for now
1: thanks very much indeed
0: Was that ever enjoyable to listen and talk to Dr. Cartledge today? If you enjoyed the episode as much as I did, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.